WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Something that healthcare providers have a strong interest in is providing telemedicine for their patients. This has been growing in popularity, especially with the current COVID-19 pandemic. To tell us more about telemedicine, we're here with Katie Mitchell. Katie, can you please tell us what you focus on particularly with in telemedicine? Sure, thanks for having me. I'm Katie Mitchell. I'm a second year PhD student in advertising and public relations, but I actually focus on health communication, specifically looking at telemedicine and mHealth. So mHealth stands for mobile health, and it can be anything like an app or your Fitbit or your Apple Watch that you use for a health-related purpose. Thanks for joining us today, Katie. In your research, are you focusing on a specific application or device when it comes to telehealth medicine? Much of my research has focused on the interpersonal relationship between parents and children, specifically looking at an app for kids with type 1 diabetes. And I'm also starting to study the interpersonal relationship between patients and providers within a telemedicine context. So you say you're focusing more broadly on like clinical visits with providers and patients, but with telehealth, you're not exactly doing visits. It's more virtual. How are you looking at this relationship between them? So I'm interested in both the patient and provider perspective of these virtual visits. Although some things are similar in a virtual face-to-face video chat, there are a lot of things that are missing, particularly when you think about a health visit in person. Your doctor's not able to physically examine you during telemedicine. And also there are just some cues that don't translate quite as easily through a computer screen or through a cell phone screen. So I'm really interested in what things work really well for these telemedicine visits that are virtual compared to in-person and what things maybe don't work so well and will require that patients come in and physically see their provider in person. In marginalized communities, it's common for people to not trust health institutions in fear of being experimented on, for example. This is fueled by famous events like the Tuskegee experiment. With doctors moving to telemedicine, how does this relationship change between the doctor and the patient? And do you think this will promote more or less distrust in the healthcare providers? I think it's difficult to say. There has been some research in computer-mediated communication related to trust, and I think it really varies. For instance, like in dating, which I know is totally different than my topic area, but we see that people are actually more trusting in computer-mediated communication spheres than they would be in face-to-face dating encounters. So is there a barrier there to trust or does it actually sort of remove this barrier because of the distance that technology creates? So that would be a really interesting thing to explore. But I do also want to touch on this idea that telemedicine offers quite an array of benefits for patients. They're given the option to not have to physically drive to the clinic and there's talks of a technological divide, but the majority of Americans do have some access, even if it's just a phone call. Things like having medicine updates, 
prescription updates, that kind of a thing that sometimes are required visits, in-person visits. If we could eliminate that, it would save the patient a lot of money. I'm not sure how that plays into trust, but I think the more we can do for patients that eases some of the burden of medical care for them, builds positive outcomes for them. So maybe that plays into trust too. You had mentioned trust, and there are many other aspects that need to be focused on when looking at interpersonal relationships. How do you specifically study the interpersonal relationships between the provider and patient? Do you, for example, use surveys? I really like to use a mixed methods approach. I like surveys. I really like interviews. I think to get a really good perspective of interpersonal relationships, it's best to have a combination of both. Nice. So it sounds like you're getting perspectives about this relationship from different vantage points then. What kind of information are you trying to gather from these different methods you're using? In surveys, you get a greater quantity of information, whereas in interviews, it's more personal. You get a greater richness of information. Typically, surveys, I will get more information in terms of the number of people I'm able to gather information from. Most surveys have only seven response options for each of the questions, and that's about as detailed as you can get. That's really great. It gives us a good idea of projecting what variable may lead to another variable, that sort of a thing. But it doesn't often get us to the deeper parts of interpersonal relationships. And so it varies which order I do these in, but often you'll do a survey and you'll get some interesting things and you'll say, okay, but I want to know more about this piece of it. And so then you may ask, so for example, patients, if they would be willing to be interviewed after they complete the survey. And then you can get to those deeper and more quality responses. You get just much more information that is harder to replicate because it's a case-by-case basis. You're just hearing what one or two or five people's experiences are rather than potentially hundreds. But it really gives you a richness of information that then helps you better understand the survey data. Or vice versa. You can do them in either order. I've done them in both. I would imagine that interviews give you a little bit more in depth that you can actually ask people to elaborate more because, for example, we're having an interview right now. I can ask you to go into depth about something versus in a survey. There are specific questions that people have to answer that unless you do logic jumps, you can't really delve deeper into it. Do people participate in both the survey and the interview? And if they do, what are the difference between the questions asked with the two methods? Typically, we try to get a sample of interview participants that had come from the survey, particularly if the survey comes first. Sometimes that's because we want the data to be connected. Sometimes it's because it's easier to recruit people that you are already in contact with. But particularly for this, I do want the interviews to come from the survey. So at the end of my survey, I include a question that says, would you be interested in participating in an interview? If they say yes, it takes them to a new screen where they can enter in their contact information, and then I contact them at a later date. Typically, we don't get one for one, and also interviews take a long time, as you know. The questions are different. So in a survey, we may ask something like, 
do you think that you will provide telemedicine services in the future? So this would be a question for providers. And the response options are yes, no, and unsure. And that's it. There's no other way that they can give us information in that survey. But then we may ask in an interview, how does telemedicine play a role in your work? And so it just allows them to give more information rather than having just strict response options. So sometimes in a survey, we'll include open-ended questions, but we don't typically pay attention to those as much as we pay attention to the responses in the interview. With the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, telemedicine is becoming much more common. You mentioned earlier that you developed an app that could perform telemedicine. Could you tell us and our audience a little more about how the app works and what inspired the creation of your app? Sure. I was part of a team that developed an app that is, as far as we know, the only of its kind. It's one app that has two interfaces, one that goes on a child's phone and one that goes on a parent's phone. And the child is supposed to be transitioning to take care of their type 1 diabetes. But the issue is type 1 diabetes is usually fully managed by the parent when the child is really young. And so as the child wants greater independence and more control, they also have to start taking care of their own diabetes, which makes this transition period a little rocky. And so this app, the idea was that we were facilitating more positive communication between the parents and their children. The main component of the app is for the child to enter their blood glucose number, which is a number that they get by pricking their finger and putting it into a device that then spits out a number. And then once they enter that number into the app, it's automatically sent to the parent's app. And then the parent and the child can talk back and forth about how they're going to manage that number. So if the number is high, there are certain management things that the child should do if the number is low. Again, different things that they should do to manage that number. In addition to that, we pre-programmed messages within the app to facilitate positive communication between parents and their children. We heard a lot in preliminary focus groups that we did how negative the communication is. Both parents and kids talked about, quote, blood sugar nagging. So our goal was to try to eliminate some of this negative communication and make it a more positive experience. I like that the child is developing their independence, but that the parent can still monitor their blood glucose level. Some people may not know the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Can you please explain the difference to our audience? Sure. I'm going to keep it really simplified because I'm not a doctor, but type 1 diabetes is often diagnosed when they're really young, sometimes even at birth. And it's essentially when the pancreas just stops producing insulin. So this will require the individual to monitor their blood sugar and take insulin to keep blood sugar levels at normal. Whereas type 2 diabetes can also be that the pancreas slowly stops working but is also sometimes related to diet and exercise choices. And in type 2 diabetes, sometimes you have to take insulin, but sometimes there are other ways to manage it. Thanks for breaking that down for us, Katie. I'd like to understand more about the interface of the app. Does it do more than provide a place for children to input their levels? Or does it also do stuff like notify the parent and child when the child needs to take insulin? 
So the app focuses primarily on the communication between the parent and the child, and then also acts as the communication tool of the blood sugar numbers. We did include like snack lists for when the child is low so that they had some ideas for snacks to have. And then when the child has a high number, so when they would take insulin, we simply said, please follow your diabetes insulin plan. We did this because we wanted to be sure that we were not providing any sort of like medical advice or anything like that. Since the majority of us are communication researchers, we did have some doctors who oversaw and made sure we were doing what we were supposed to, but purely the app is focused on communication. It's good that you had consultation on the medical aspect, but that it also aids with communication. How does this app specifically facilitate communication? Is there a chat feature or ways that the parent can send reminders to the child? Yes, the app has what we called the messaging feature. We allowed for open text messaging within the app, but we also pre-programmed some messages that were geared towards more positive communication. The only thing we did not include were reminders from the parent to the child, and that was on purpose. So the system itself, the app, would send reminders to the child to test and enter their blood sugar numbers. But because we received that information about blood sugar nagging, we wanted to sort of remove the parents from that role and have them as more of a cheerleader. So instead of the parents saying, what's your blood sugar number? Did you test your blood sugar? We're having the app do that. And then the parent is just sort of that extra support. It sounds like the app provides a comprehensive package for telemedicine during these crazy times. However, are there any other apps that do telemedicine for type 1 diabetes patients? And how does your app compare to the others? Yes, definitely. There are lots of apps on the market for type 1 diabetes. In particular, there are devices that seamlessly send blood sugar numbers from the child to an app that can be connected to both the child's phone and the parent's phone. So we really thought we were going to run into a big issue competing with these types of devices, these types of apps. But actually what we found in our interviews, the children felt as though they had a better idea of their blood sugar numbers because they were having to physically go into the app and enter their blood sugar numbers. So this was very surprising and we were very happy about this. However, it continues to bring up issues as we move forward in, in our testing because we want people to use this app for a long period of time and people do get worn out. So I think apps that are out there that aren't part of major companies do struggle with that engagement piece. What I think sets our app apart the most is that we're focused on creating a positive communication environment around type 1 diabetes management, which is not anything we've seen in apps on the market. I've never developed an app before. I've always wanted to, though. I would imagine that many other people have not developed one either. Can you walk us through what that process is like and how long does it take to make an app? So the process is long. I did not actually develop it, nor did my immediate team. We did hire a company to do the, the technological pieces of it. 
However, we built the concept, created all of the messaging, had meeting after meeting of exactly, you know, tweaking everything, making it exactly as we needed it to be. The grant project itself was a three-year project, and we had some beta testing in between, but the actual final app was not tested until two years after we began the process of developing the app. So it did take a long time. We had an awesome app developer who did literally everything we asked, but it takes a lot. And it never occurred to me how many details go into just simply the flow of how we navigate our apps on our phone. Since you've been working on this app now for a while, have you drawn any meaningful conclusions? And how can this be used to inform future app development for telemedicine? Are you interested in making more apps afterwards? So our results were really promising. We found that the app demonstrated improvements in diabetes management behaviors. Uh, and this is really critical for this patient population so that they can integrate these management behaviors into their everyday life. As for developing more apps in the future, I'm not sure. I wouldn't be opposed to it, but as I mentioned, it is quite a lengthy and expensive process. So we'll see. Well, thanks for joining us today, Katie. Before you go though, I was just curious, what inspired you to do this research since you started this before the pandemic? I would say my husband is my inspiration, particularly for the transition to this new focus of interpersonal relationships between patients and providers. My husband's a provider, and I selfishly believe that I've played a role in his communication with his patients. And so he sort of inspired me to help other providers feel more confident and better able to communicate with their patients. I understand that feeling. Chelsea always inspires me to be a better version of myself every single day. Thanks for joining us today, Katie, to talk to us about the work that you're doing on telemedicine, as well as the app that you worked on as well. The Sci-Files is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Dan Puentes on Impact 89FM. Thank you to our news director, Taylor Halterman, program director, Amber Konutsky, station manager, Joe Dandrin, and general manager, Jeremy Whiting. The Sci-Files can be found online on scifiles.org and on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on SciFiles, or if you have any questions, you can contact us at SciFiles at impact9fm.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth is in the science.